This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. We head into this week uh, that we sometimes refer to as Passion Week. Uh, Today would be Palm Sunday. Uh, The day that we uh, recognize and remember when Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem, uh, he was hailed Hosanna, uh, which means salvation is here. And many people actually thought that Jesus was coming to establish an earthly kingdom to overthrow the Roman government. And uh, because of that, they hailed him as Savior and King. Uh, Although they did not realize at that time that he would be a different type of Savior. Uh, These same voices that cried out Hosanna in the highest uh, on the... uh, Palm Sunday would also cry out for his crucifixion just mere days later. And so, uh, interesting turn of events as we look at Passion Week. I thought it was important that we pull over and take a look at the cross of Christ and the hope that's found there. Now, I'll tell you today is going to be a little bit different type of a message than what you're normally used to at Huikala. Normally what we do is we take a passage of Scripture, uh, we, we dig in deep to that, we take a look at phrases and words, and we tie that in with the uh, totality of the rest of Scripture and bring it all together, and then at the end give you a practical application. Here's what you do with that. Uh, that's the best way to preach the Bible. We sometimes refer to that as expository Bible preaching because it exposes the Scripture and digs deep into it. Today's going to be a little bit different because it's going to be more of a topical message. Now, uh, again, when we take a look at the cross of Christ, there's no one passage of Scripture that it fully uh, elaborates on that. It's really found all throughout Scripture. So we'll try to tie in a lot of different verses today and different passages of Scripture to one central thought, and that's the hope that's found in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you to take some really good notes here today. That's why I put notes in your hand because we're covering a lot of ground, a lot of verses uh, that we'll cover today. We won't take time to turn them in your, your Bible. I want you to just take a look at those in your notes here today as well. But one verse to kind of kick things off that I think of Paul as he closes out his letter to the churches at Galatia. Uh, One of the uh, phrases that he uses uh, is so critical. He says, uh, uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse number 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. As we look, take a look at Passion Week, and this Friday we'll celebrate Good Friday together in a Good Friday service at 7 p.m. Not a long service, just about an hour or so where we sing some songs about the cross and contemplate the cross and really kind of prepare our hearts for Resurrection Sunday next Sunday. As we take a look at the cross, the cross means so much to you and I. And Paul says, if I'm going to glory in anything, God forbid that I would glory in anything, that I would find uh, my value in, that I would, would find a reason to boast or brag in anything other than the cross of Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified to me and I to it. And so, so much power in that verse here. But as we look at the, the cross, the cross has so much power inherently in the cross Today we're taking a look really at uh, a study that we refer to as the study of salvation, the word soteriology. When we talk about soteriology, it's the Christian study of theology focused on the saving work of Christ, including the issues of atonement, grace, human nature, sin, and resurrection. It's a term that comes from the Greek word soteria, which means salvation. So today will be a study of soteriology. And again, a little bit different in the fact that we're teaching today the importance of the cross. And here's the idea behind that. More than just giving you facts, 
more than just giving you knowledge. The Bible says that, that knowledge puffs up. Knowledge itself, in and of itself, just makes us really proud that we're smarter than everybody else. The idea of, of today's message is not to just give you more knowledge. The idea is that you and I, as we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, would not simply see that as just a, a way that you and I were brought to God. We would not just see it as a, maybe a piece of jewelry or a piece of furniture or a decoration in your home. That we would see the cross for what it truly is. That we would see the depths of God's love for you and I. That we would see the awesome and majesty of our God that from eternity past he had put together a plan of redemption for mankind and we would look at the cross and say, wow, that's really powerful. That's the idea behind today. As we take a look at the, the cross, we need to, first of all, take a look at our own human condition. First of all, my sin has broken me spiritually. When we take a look at what our sin has done for us, sin is not one thing that we've done one time that we're not proud of. Sin characterizes who we are as human beings. We're spiritually broken. The Bible tells us that we come forth from our mother's womb speaking lies. From the very first moment that we're brought into this world, we're already sinners. The Bible t tells us in the book of Psalms that uh, David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. Not the act of his conception was sinful, but from the moment that he became a person, which again, for Bible-believing Christians, that's at conception. He says, I was already...
the cross of Christ because they say things like, well, I'm not that bad of a person. Or maybe I can just say a prayer and go to heaven. You don't understand the depths of your depravity and who you are versus who God expects you to be. When we talk about sin, sin is, uh, the word sin means to miss the mark. God has a standard set and you have missed it. Not once or twice, but again and again and again and again. We've missed the mark that God has set. And so it's not a matter of, okay, well, I need to try really, uh, try harder to, to hit the mark. You couldn't hit the mark if you wanted to. I mean, think about it this way for, for just a moment. If you decided that tomorrow, because you've already blown it for today, tomorrow you're not going to sin at all, not even one single time. And you're going to be conscious all day long of everything that you do and say to make sure that you don't sin at all tomorrow in a 24-hour period. You think you can make it? No. Because even if you try to be on your best behavior and do all the right things, sin is not a matter of just doing the right things. It's about doing all of the right things. There might be things that you missed, things that you left out, things that you still fell short, that you weren't perfect with. And again, when Jesus judges, he doesn't just judge your actions, he judges your heart. So it's not just a matter of the things that you did, it's a matter of the things that you thought. And so you and I couldn't be righteous if we wanted to. You and I couldn't be better if we tried really, really hard because we will always fall short of God's expectation. Now, the important thing to note about sin and why it's such of a big deal and why this church exists today is because the wrath of God abides on all of those who are in their sin. What does that mean? That means that God's punishment is coming. That means that God's judgment is coming. And if you die... In your sin, you will experience God's wrath for all of eternity. That's what the Bible says. If you're here today and there's never been a time in your life where you've been saved or born again, please understand. You have a death sentence on your head. God will continue to punish you for your sin. And when you die, it only gets worse from there. I love what John says in John chapter 3, verse number 36. It's really cut and dried. It's very black and white. He who hath the Son hath life, eternal life. We don't fear death. Everybody dies physically. That's just a graduation ceremony to glory to be in heaven with Jesus Christ. Not a big deal. He who hath the Son hath life. But he who hath not the Son hath not life, and the wrath of God abides on him. That's pretty heavy. That's pretty weighty. That's why God left us with an institution, with a mission to tell everybody in the world their sinful condition and the hope that they have in forgiveness through the person and cross of Jesus Christ. Because here's the worst part about it. Tomorrow you're going to go to work, tomorrow you're going to go to school, tomorrow you're going to go to a restaurant, tomorrow morning you're going to grab your coffee, and you're going to interact with a person who is under the wrath of God, either by choice or by ignorance. They've chosen to rebel against God and they flat out don't care, or they didn't know that they were under the wrath of God, they just need somebody to tell them. And that's why this church exists. To sound the bell. Jesus saves sinners. 
does he do that? He does that through his cross. When we think about the death of mankind, death is not a natural event. Death is actually a penal event. It's God's punishment for sin. When we look at life, we think of just the life cycle of everything lives, everything dies, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. That's just nature. That's the course of nature. That's not the course of nature. That's God's punishment. In the Garden of Eden, when we look back to to the creation account in Genesis, nothing was supposed to die. Nothing was supposed to suffer. Nothing was supposed to get sick. But the moment that man sinned against God, death came into the world as punishment for sin. Now, it's interesting that God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, hey, whenever you eat of this fruit in the the center of the the tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil, in that day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Now, the devil came along and lied like the devil does. The devil came along and twisted scripture like he always does and says, you're not going to die. God just doesn't want you to be like him. You can eat of it, but you're not going to die. And the Bible says that, that Eve was deceived, but Adam full well knew what he was doing. And they ate of that tree, and guess what? They didn't die. And so you look at that and you go, well, God said they died that day, but they didn't really die. You need to understand what death means. We think of death as uh, you stop breathing, your heart stops beating, and you die. The word death means separation. It means a part of them died that day. The part of them that had communion with God, their spirit died the day they rebelled against God. And from that moment forward, death, spiritual and physical, came upon all mankind. You and I are born body, soul, spirit, three-part being. Our body is born physically. Inside of every single one of us is our emotions, our personality, the way that God made us that makes us uniquely us. That's our soul. But our spirit, the part that has communion with God, is born dead. So until you meet Jesus, you're going to feel like a shell of a person because part of you is dead. You're going to feel like something's always missing, and it is because part of you is dead. And most of you have experienced this. And spiritual death and part of you is missing. You try to fill it with different things, maybe different hobbies or education or accolades or relationships or drugs or alcohol because something inside of you is missing because you're spiritually dead inside. Jesus came to make you alive. But death is not part of the natural process. It's God's punishment for sin. So when we take a look at the cross of Jesus Christ and we understand who we are first of all, We are wretched sinners who are slaves to sin, who are in danger of God's wrath, deserving of God's punishment. We stand spiritually dead and hopeless without a Savior. Jesus came and died for us. You see, Jesus' death upon the cross was substitutionary and vicarious. What that means is You were supposed to die, you were supposed to be punished, you were supposed to endure God's wrath. That's what we deserve. But when Jesus died upon the cross, Jesus died in our place. Jesus was punished on our behalf, and Jesus endured the wrath of God in our place, and he endured all of that 
vicariously for us. We sometimes refer to this. And again, if you're taking notes, I recommend that you write this down because here's some good, deep theological terms for you. We refer to this as the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. Penal substitutionary atonement. What does the word penal mean? It means punishment. Substitutionary, you know what that means? Somebody did it for you. And the atonement, we'll get to that in just a little bit, means that it brought peace with God where there was no peace before. Jesus brokered a peace deal with God and became the payment that made it possible for you and I to have peace with God. And his death upon the cross was a penal substitutionary atonement for my sin and yours. That's what the cross means. As we look at that, it means that he bore my pain. Now, when we talk about crucifixion, crucifixion was, and still is to this day, one of the most painful ways to die. We even get our English word excruciation. Excruciating pain comes from the word crucifixion. Romans did not invent crucifixion, but they actually perfected it. Prior to crucifixion, people tried to to establish ways to humiliate and kill in the most heinous ways possible. One of the ways that they did that was a pole, a sharp pole that would be stuck inside the ground, and they would take the person being executed, and they would place them up on the pole. The pole would generally be rammed through their backside, and they found that it, it damaged their organs so quickly that they bled out so quickly, and they died of shock so quickly that they were dead in minutes. And they thought to themselves, well, that's not a very difficult way to die because it's over too quickly. And they tried to place the person upon this pole and ram it through the back of their back in the midsection. And they found that it would either puncture the lungs or puncture the heart and they would die far too quickly. So they had to devise a way to keep people in pain for the longest period possible. And the Romans really kind of perfected the act of crucifixion where nails would either be placed in their hands or between the bones of their wrists to hold them in place. Generally, they would either be have their feet one over the other and a, a spike driven through their feet or their feet placed on the side of the cross and, and nails going through their ankle bones on both sides to keep them in place. As their lungs began to fill with blood, the only way to gather their breath would be to raise themselves up with their own feet from the bottom of the cross to be able to gasp for air. And generally, they would sometimes drown in their own blood. Oftentimes, depictions that we see of artist depictions of the cross of Christ can't hold a candle to what truly happened. We generally see Jesus Christ with a little bit of blood from his brow covered in a white loincloth. If you read the crucifixion account, the Bible says they cast lots for his garments and they split up his clothes. And to think that Romans who crucified in a way to humiliate and execute would be so decent to cover Jesus with a loincloth just doesn't bear weight biblically or historically. Those people were crucified completely and totally naked. As one would go into, the body would go into shock, oftentimes they would vomit on themselves and urinate on themselves, and it was even more fun to watch 
as these people would gather around to mock the person being crucified. That's how my Savior died. But again, Jesus doesn't get a badge of honor for enduring the worst way to die. Two other guys did it the same day. If you study out through Roman history, Christians would be crucified and then set on fire as light. If you've never had the opportunity to read the, the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, you should read that. It's an absolutely eye-opening account of how Christians gave their life for the faith. So the pain that Jesus endured that day, as he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? was not due to physical pain. And we don't admire the cross of Christ for the physical pain that he endured. Was that incredible? Absolutely. But Jesus endured that day the punishment of God for the sins of mankind. And so Jesus not only bore my pain, but he became my sin. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He didn't feel as if God had left him. He didn't feel as if God had forsaken him. God actually forsook his son. Because Jesus Christ became sin in that moment, God had to separate himself from his son. For the first time in all of eternal history, God the Father and God the Son were no longer together as the Father separated himself from the Son because the Son had became sin. And God turned his back on his own Son because of my sin. Because of your sin. And when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That wasn't an accusation against God. That was a fact of what had truly happened. And so Jesus bore the pain of death. That was my death to die. He bore my sin. Jesus Christ bore my penalty. God was supposed to have forsaken me. God was supposed to have left me. God was supposed to have turned his back on me. God was supposed to have poured out his wrath and punishment on me. But Jesus took it for me. I was supposed to die. But he died in my place. So as we look at the cross of Christ, it's just so powerful. Because when I look at that, I say, it should have been me. I deserve it, 100%. And, and if you and I can ever sit back to the point where we say, well, my sin's not that bad. You just don't have a proper view of sin. If we can look at our life and go, yeah, I'm, I'm sure I've messed up, but it's not that big of a deal. You don't understand the holiness and righteousness of God. And Jesus took that on, on our behalf. Isaiah chapter 53, verse number 5 says, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus would ever be crucified, prophesied of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in this event, and said Jesus was put to death because of our sin. I think it's important to note too in Isaiah 53, 5 here, by his stripes we are healed is talking about our spiritual healing because of our spiritual brokenness. False versions of Christianity have claimed that this verse is speaking of physical healing. 
that you and I's sickness is healed by the cross of Christ, that could not be further from the truth. It doesn't even make sense in the context. It's talking about our sinful condition. I read this past week, it was a blasphemous conference being held in California teaching you how that you can heal by the power of God and raising up a generation of prophets who would go out and be healers to the nation and come and pay $185 for this seminar and we'll teach you how you too can heal people from physical sickness because by his stripes we are healed. And it was dot, 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 by his stripes we are healed, dot, 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 in parentheses. Wait a minute. You put dots there because it doesn't fit in the context of what you're saying. And anybody who, with, with a third grade education that could read Isaiah 53, 5, knows he's not talking about physical healing there. Because our greatest need is not to be healed from cancer. Our greatest need is to be healed from our sinful condition. Our greatest need is not to be healed from arthritis or a bad back or poor eyesight, our greatest need is to be healed of our broken spiritual condition. And so by his stripes we are healed, spiritually speaking. Isaiah 53, verse number 12, Therefore I will divide him, speaking of Jesus, a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Numbered with the transgressors. Who is that? You and I. He was counted as sin for you and I. And he bared the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Romans 4.25, he was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Romans 5.8, but God commendeth or demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15.3, but them that are without, without, without God, ju- he judgeth, therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us as it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs upon a tree. You see, Jesus' death was embarrassing. Again, the whole purpose of crucifixion was to be embarrassing. Oftentimes we see depictions of Christ's crucifixion really high up in the air, like, like 10 feet up in the air so that people, he can look down and people can look up. Generally, when they crucified people, they would crucify them at eye level so that people could come by and spit in their faces. So people could stand in front of them and laugh at them and mock at them. Shameful. You know, when I think about the crucifixion, and you should read a crucifixion account from the Gospels this week. I would encourage you to do that as you prepare your heart for Resurrection Sunday. You know who stood by and watched as all this took place? His own mother. Again, to think of the shame and embarrassment to die that way, it was as bad as it gets. But you see, for the Jews, it was even worse. Because in the Old Testament law, the Bible says, cursed is every man that hangs upon a tree. And for every person who died and was hung upon a tree, it was proof that that person was cursed by God. So when the Jews saw Christ being crucified, they're like, yeah, we said he was a blasphemer. We said that he called himself the Son of God when he wasn't. And look at how he died, cursed of God. Of course, we were totally right. So again, it adds shame to embarrassment to shame the way that my Savior died because cursed is every man that hangs upon a tree. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 18, For Christ hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. 1 John 2, 2, And he's a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also the sins of the whole world. 
So as we take a look at this terrible, awful, shameful way to die, we say, how do we call this a win? The Bible shares at least four victories from the, from the cross. These are not unique to me. It's the outstanding book called The Cross of Christ by John Stott. I highly encourage you to read that. It's a great book. But John Stott talks about four different victories that we find from the cross, and each one of these three, are, three words are deep theological, soteriological concepts, again, that show us what the cross has given to us. As we take a look at the first one, all four of these words have different venues that they play themselves out in. The first of these is the word propitiation. Propitiation speaks of the, the venue for propitiation is the temple. Now, again, words mean stuff. And so I highly encourage you to get a good English translation of the Bible. If you notice here at, at Huicala, we use the King James Version of the Bible. It keeps intact the word propitiation. There's other English translations that use the word atoning sacrifice, which does not mean the same thing as propitiation. Words mean something, and so get a good Bible uh, translation. If you need help with that, I'd be happy to talk it through with you and, and help you uh, make come to a decision like that. But the word propitiation means something. And I encourage you that with this as well. The words that we're going to go through today, some of you might look and go, well, that's, that's kind of a hard Bible word. It is. But let me just challenge you, dig deep into the Word of God. Become a student of the Word of God. If you're really going to stake your life on this book, which you should, you should know it forwards and backwards, upside and down, downside. You should know the Word of God. So when you come to a word like propitiation, look it up. We have Bible dictionaries in the, in the back here. I highly encourage you to get a good Bible dictionary and look up what words like propitiation and find out what they mean. Don't look for a version of the Bible that uses an easier word because words mean something. Dig in deep to the Word of God. I often tell people when I go to the doctor, I don't want the doctor to tell me, oh, the little tube that connects to your tummy feels a little yucky today. No, I want him to tell me there's inflammation in your esophagus that is causing problems with the lining of your stomach. Hey, I might not know what that means, but he can explain it to me. I don't want him to make, talk to me like I'm, I'm a second grader. I want to know stuff. And when it comes to the Word of God, propitiation means something. You need to know what it means. When we take a look at God's way that God forgave sin in the Old Testament, it was done through animal sacrifice. On the Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur, the priest would take two animals into the temple with him. There's a special room called the Holy of Holies that no one could walk into because that was where the Spirit of God resided. Before the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, he had to change his clothes. He had to completely and totally cleanse himself from top to bottom. He had to confess every sin that he knew that he had in the universe before he could ever step into the presence of God. He had to clean himself first. But once he walked into the Holy of Holies, he took two animals with him. Inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. On the lid of the Ark of the Covenant were two angels with their wings outstretched, covering their face as if they were bowing before the throne of God. That was referred to as the mercy seat on the top there. The priest would then take the sins of the people symbolically and would place them upon the mercy seat and would confess the sins of the people there in the presence of God and place their sins symbolically upon that mercy seat. Then he would take the animal, whether it be a lamb or a goat. It had to be a perfect spotless lamb, perfect spotless goat. He'd take a knife and he would slit the throat of the animal and the blood would pour out there in front of the, the Ark of the Covenant and the blood would be placed upon the mercy seat. 
And the idea was that the blood would be placed upon the mercy so, so that when God looked down at the sins of the people, he could no longer see the sins of the people because they had been covered by the blood of this animal. Therefore, because God could not see that sin, God would not judge that sin, and God's wrath would be turned away or appeased. And so this covering of the blood of the sins on the mercy seat that would turn away the wrath of God is the word propitiation. It's a rich word. Then the second animal was referred to as the escape goat or scapegoat. What would happen is the sins of the people would be symbolically again placed upon the head of this goat. And the priest would repent of the sins of the people over this goat. And they would take this goat outside of the temple and send it out into the wilderness never to be seen ever again. Now, I can imagine being a Jew at this time, making a sacrifice like this, thinking to yourself, well, why does it have to be a goat or a lamb? Those are good animals. We could use those. Why can't we, like, give up, like, a squirrel or something like that? Like, something that doesn't cost a lot, you know? That goat that we sent out into the wilderness, can we, like, get him back in a couple of days? Because, like, nothing wrong with the goat. He's a good goat. I mean, do we really have to run him out to the wilderness forever? But you see, you and I have the luxury of reading back. And seeing that account and seeing, wait a minute, Jesus Christ was both lambs, both goats. Jesus Christ had his blood shed as a covering for our sin. That's why Jesus had to be crucified. His blood had to be shed. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Had Jesus died of a heart attack or died in his sleep, you and I would still be in our sin because his blood had to be shed because it had to cover our sin. Because Jesus Christ, covering my sin and covering yours, turns away God's wrath from us. But then there's still the guilt and shame of sin, right? Okay, the penalty's not there, but I still carry the guilt and shame. No, Jesus now is the scapegoat. That our sin was placed upon him and it was carried out never to be seen ever again. That's why the goat couldn't come back in a couple of days. Because our sin would never return to us again. It was taken and it was dealt with once and for all. And so after the blood was shed of the animal, after the scapegoat was shed, there were still leftover animal parts. The fat of the animal would be burned inside the temple. But then the remaining meat and bones and skin would be taken outside of the city limits outside, away from the people, outside of the village, and would be burned outside until nothing remained. It's almost like when our Savior had died upon that cross, they were going to break his legs and kill him, but then the prophecy couldn't be fulfilled that not a bone was broken, and so they ran a spear through his side and blood and water flowed. And they took him down, they laid him in a borrowed tomb, they rolled a stone over the front outside the city of Jerusalem. You see, the sacrifice of the animal was taking place in the temple, but then it was taken outside. Jesus Christ was not crucified inside the city limits of Jerusalem. He was taken outside to, to Golgotha, the place of the skull, and crucified there. 
All is a perfect picture of the fact that God would turn away His wrath by the sacrifice of His Son. All the pictures of the fact that Jesus Christ would take away the shame and the guilt of His people. So when we talk about propitiation, this is appeasing God's wrath. So again, if your Bible translation uses the word atoning sacrifice, I'd encourage you to probably get a different Bible because you might be missing some other stuff too. Propitiation is a beautiful Bible word to say that atoning sacrifice, yes, turned away the wrath of God against me. When we talk about the word expiation, which is a theological term that we don't find in Scripture, it's talking about God removing our sin and guilt. And so at the cross of Christ was propitiation, yes, and also expiation. Can we take a look at Scripture, Romans chapter 3, verse number 24? Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins past through the forbearance of God. First John 2, 2, and He is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. First John 4, 10, here in His love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here's a beautiful thought, too, that we don't have fully time to develop this morning, but I want to throw it out there in case you missed it. The priest, before he went into the Holy of Holies, changed clothes, cleansed himself top to bottom before he could ever make the sacrifice that would cover our sins. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus Christ is a high priest who needed no cleansing. He was perfect to begin with. Jesus didn't have to cleanse himself before he made a sacrifice. He went straight to the cross and made a sacrifice because he was already 100% clean. Such rich symbolism there. Again, we don't have time to get into the Passover lamb today. We take a look at the book of Exodus. The death angel came and passed over everyone whose blood was on the doorposts of the house. And if the blood of the sacrificial lamb has been applied to your account, death passes over you. And there's no death, there's only eternal life. That's how God deals with our sin in the temple venue. Next we see the word redemption. This takes place in the marketplace. Propitiation focuses on the wrath of God, which was placated on the cross. Redemption focuses on the plight of sinners from which they were ransomed by the cross. So when we talk about redemption, we think about our plight is our sin. Again, the Bible says that we are slaves to sin. So the problem that we have is the fact that we're sinners and we're slaves to our sin. Now it's important to note here too, we don't have time to go into it today, but there's a, a false uh, ideology, false theology, uh, if you will, of the idea that you and I were slaves to Satan and that God, through the redemption of Christ, purchased our freedom from Satan to himself. First of all, there's not a a shred of biblical evidence about that, first of all. Secondly, let me just say this. My God is so powerful that if he wanted something from Satan, all he's got to do is take it. You don't have to pay nothing. So again, that doesn't really bear weight. You and I, according to the Bible, Romans chapter 5, were slaves to our sin. So our plight was the fact that we are slaves to sin and the price that was paid for our freedom was the blood of Christ. So once we were slaves to sin, 
we were purchased in the slave market of sin, ransomed and redeemed by the blood of Christ. When we th think about redemption and the idea of purchasing us out of our sin and purchasing to God himself, it's important to note that the word redemption goes together in the Bible with the word ransom. When we think of ransom, a price that is paid to free someone from captivity, we often think of like true crime stories or uh, crime dramas or documentaries that we've seen on kidnappings and things along those lines. The same word ransom there rings true. You have someone that was caught up in captivity that needed to be set free, but a price had to be paid first for that. That's the idea between you and I. That you and I were slaves to sin and a price had to be paid to set us free from our sinful condition. A ransom, if you will, must be paid. But here's the awesome thing about ransoms. They're always really expensive, aren't they? Like, nobody's ever kidnapped somebody's kid and, and offered to set them free for $20, right? I often say, if, God, if somebody kidnaps some of my kids, I think they'd probably bring them back and pay me a bounty to take them back, right? But think about that. Somebody kidnapped your kids and they say, oh, we, we need a, a ransom of $20. Yeah, I'll give you $200. I'll give you $2,000. I just want my kids back. The ransom that was paid for my sin and yours was an incredibly high price. It was the blood of God's only son. That was the price that was paid for our freedom. So when you and I think about the freedom that we have in Christ from sin, first of all, we should stop for just a second and say, if we're struggling with sin, we're only struggling because we choose to. Romans chapter 6 tells us that by the blood of Christ, sin has no more dominion over you, no more power over you. If you're messing around with sin, it's because you choose to, not because you have to. But you also need to understand, well, my sin's not that bad. Your sin put the sinless Son of God to death. Your sin was so great that the only way to set you free was for God to publicly execute His own Son. Please, let's not downplay our own sinful condition. It's pretty bad. But the redemption that we have was... The freedom that was bought for us was a decisive and costly intervention. Mark chapter 10, verse number 45, For the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. First Timothy chapter 2, verse number 5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified of in, in due time. I love Galatians chapter 4, verse number 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem, to purchase back them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. You see, God didn't just purchase you as a slave to sin only to make you a slave to himself. He purchased you to make you his son. He purchased you to make you his daughter. He adopted you into the family of God and has shown you what true freedom looks like, freedom in Christ. That's the good stuff. I love what Revelation chapter 5, verse number 9 says. It says that one day that we'll be in heaven, 
with God the Father and God the Son. They sung a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain. And thou hast redeemed us to God out of thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. I was a slave to sin. I couldn't stop sinning if I wanted to. I was hopeless, literally without hope. And the cross and the shed blood of Jesus Christ purchased my soul and brought me into a family with God where I can call him father and he can call me son. It's a big deal. First Peter Peter uses the word peculiar. You're a peculiar people. The word peculiar doesn't mean strange. It means you're a purchased possession. The Bible says that you and I no longer belong to ourselves, that we've been bought with a price. What was the price? The price was the blood of Jesus Christ. So when we think of our standing before God, you and I were purchased out of the marketplace of sin through God's redemption. Next, we see another victory of the cross through justification. This is our legal standing. The venue that we have is a courtroom. You and I are guilty before God because the Bible says that we are. Again, if any man offended in one point of the law, he's guilty of all of it. If all you ever did was sin one single solitary time, which you haven't, you've sinned a lot more than that, you're guilty before God anyways. The Bible says that the law is there, the Word of God is there to show you how badly you need to be saved. That again, the more I understand what God expects of me, the more I understand how deficient I am and the more that I need to be saved. So again, when we talk about the courtroom, the charges on my account and yours are sin. The verdict that is already handed down is guilty. The sentence which has already been handed down is death and hell and God's punishment for eternity. And please understand in God's courtroom, there is no court of appeals. It's done. So, we see our standing before God is guilty. We see Jesus Christ standing before God is righteous. So when we talk about our guilt before God, we can use the word condemnation. The fact that you and I are guilty before God. Condemned. Now, God loves you, God loves me, and he wanted to make a way for you and I to not be in our sin, but to be forgiven. And he sent Jesus to die in our place. And Jesus went to the cross so that he could pay the penalty of our sins. Again, God would not be a just God if he just let everybody off. People think, well, couldn't God just forgive everybody and just kind of give everybody a fresh start over? Yeah, but that wouldn't be justice, would it? And something inside of us cries out for justice, doesn't it? When we hear things like, some pedophile was given 30 days community service. We say, where's the justice in that? That guy needs to pay. I think most of us, when we watch the news and people are turning over police cars and lighting businesses on fire and breaking windows and looting and stealing, somebody stands there with a microphone and say, we see behind us a mostly peaceful protest. We're like, what are you talking about? These people are criminals and they should be put in jail. This is not a protest. This is not a demonstration of free speech. This is criminal activity and someone must pay. That's justice. If you went to a courtroom and the, ju the judge just says, 
dismiss, 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 dismiss. You say, where's the justice? What's the point in even having rules if nobody has to follow them? So God can't be just and give us rules that we break and there's no consequences. Somebody has to pay. And the penalty is death. So if you've sinned and you have, somebody has to die. That's the only way to make it right. And so you can die in your sin and pay your penalty of your sin by, by being punished by God forever, or someone can pay for you. I can't pay your debt because I have my own sin debt. A church can't pay for your sin because a church is just comprised of sinners who also have a sin debt. And there's not enough religious works in the world, enough good things you can do to pay for your sin because somebody has to die. And so Jesus was willing to die in our place. Again, his penal substitutionary atonement for sin. So get this. This is where justification comes in. And, and again, some very well-meaning preachers throughout the ages have says justified means just as if I'd never sinned. Again, okay, it's a simplistic definition that doesn't bear the full weight of what justification means. But here's what justification means. And here's, again, really good Bible definition. We sometimes refer to this as the beautiful exchange. Justification means that my sin was placed upon Jesus and Jesus' righteousness was placed upon me. The word justification literally means right clothing. So, get this. If my sin is placed upon Jesus and Jesus becomes my sin, then now he must be punished. And what's the punishment for sin? Somebody help me. Death. He's got to die. And not only die, he has to be punished in his death. The wrath of God poured out upon him. And he did that because he became my sin. Again, 1 Corinthians tells us, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so not only did he take on our sin, but he's placed upon all those who give him their faith and repentance, he's placed upon them his righteousness so that when God looks at me, he does not see my sinful condition because I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he sees me as perfect and clean and not guilty. So the opposite of condemnation is, is justification. I'm clean. I'm clear. I'm free. I am not guilty. Again, when we talk in legal terms, again, sometimes people say, oh, well, God dismissed all the charges against me. No, he didn't. All those charges still stand. And they were punished once and for all so that your charges did not get dismissed. They got paid in full. It's critical that we get that. Because again, if God just dismisses the charges against us and sweeps them under the rug, he's not just. Justice requires payment. And the payment was made by Jesus Christ. And so you and I, when we are justified, we're justified, first of all, by grace. I'm not deemed holy and righteous and worthy of God's forgiveness because I'm a good person, because I do good things, because I go to church, because I try to be nice to people. 
It is only the grace of God which deems me righteous before God. I'm only justified because God is gracious. Again, Romans 3.24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we're justified by grace. Next, we're justified by faith. You cannot be saved without faith and repentance. Again, if we take a look at uh, Romans chapter 5, verse number 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we also have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the holy hope and the glory of God. So again, when we talk about justification, I have to believe that God is good to His Word. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that He is payment enough for my sins. I believe He's the only way to heaven. I believe He died upon the cross and rose again the third day victorious, and I'm asking Him to save me and forgive me of my sins. That's the only way you can be made right with God. By faith. So, Friend, if you're here today and there's never been a time in your life where you've been born again or saved, you're 100% still guilty. And when God looks at you, all he sees is your sin, which must be punished. And so you can either pay for it on your own or you can pay for it by faith through Jesus Christ. I believe in the work of the cross of Christ on my behalf. I'm receiving Jesus as my Savior and I'm turning from my sin. It's the only way that you can make it right. But you do it by faith, not by anything that you've done. Next, we're justified by Jesus' blood. Again, His blood had to be shed upon the cross. Much more than now being justified by His blood, we shall be saved through wrath through Him. Romans 5, 9. Titus chapter 3, verse number 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. For the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Romans chapter 3, verse number 23 through 25. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the, get this word, redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So when it comes to my sin in the courtroom, God looks at me and says, not guilty, move on. Now again, didn't dismiss it. Somebody had to pay and that was Jesus. But friend, if you've never been saved or born again, please understand God says guilty is charged. The sentence is death and hell for all of eternity. That's it, no appeal. Now there's still time until, for you until you take your last breath here on planet earth to receive that gift of forgiveness. But you can appeal to the blood of Jesus Christ. But friend, you can't appeal to your own good graces or your good works. And once you take your last breath on here on planet earth, there's nothing anyone in the world can do for you. That's why when somebody dies, we don't pray that God will receive their soul. God either receives it or rejects it based on what they did with Jesus. We don't pray that God would be merciful on their soul. God is either showing mercy or he's showing wrath, and there's nothing you and I can do to change that. We don't say, may his soul rest in peace, because his soul is either already resting in peace or resting in eternal torment, and there's nothing we can do to change that. So again, for Bible-believing Christians, we say things like, I'm sorry for your loss. Was this person a Christian? Because there's nothing you and I can do to change it once they take their last breath. 
But friend, if you're here today, you have every moment to make things right with God until it's done here on planet Earth. And I would encourage you, if you're not saved, be saved today. The last venue that we have and the last theological term we look at today is reconciliation used in the venue of being at home with family. Reconciliation is the restoration of a broken relationship, a renewal of a friendship. Reconciliation is the opposite of alienation. Reconciliation takes us from being enemies of God to being the sons and daughters of God. Our reconciliation is only available because of our justification. Again, if we are enemies of God, if we are still clothed in our own sinful condition, we cannot come to God as Father. Our sin repels God. Our sin repelled God from His own Son as He became sin for us upon the cross of Christ. So we think of reconciliation. This brings access to God through communion, through fellowship, with prayer. We have the opportunity to call God our Father because we're now sons and daughters of God. I love what the Bible says in John chapter 1. To them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. You and I get to be adopted into the family of God because of the cross of Christ and the reconciliation that's brought there. Another Bible word that's used together with reconciliation is the word atonement. Atonement means peace with God. You can think of it this way as you break up the word atonement, at one mint. It means we're brought together as one with God through His atonement and reconciliation. But the brokering of peace requires that someone did something to bring that peace. There has to be some way that we can come to God to make peace with Him, but we can't make peace on our own with God because the Bible says we were the enemies of God. And so Jesus had to come. His, his death upon the cross brought peace with God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse number 18, For Christ hath once suffered for sin, just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. I love that. First Peter 3.18, look at that again. For Christ has su- once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, take a look at this. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath. That's the word propitiation through him. If we then, when we were the enemies, we were reconciled to God, how? By the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's the the strange paradox here is by the death of Jesus Christ, we have eternal life because our death sentence was absorbed by him. And not only so, but we also join God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By now we, we have received the atonement. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus Christ. Again, we can now come in where the Spirit of God dwells because of our high priest has made the ultimate sacrifice by a new and living way which has consecrated us through the veil that is to say is flesh and having a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
our sin is completely washed away. Why? Because that sacrifice of that animal, that blood that was spilled by that animal has sprinkled our hearts and now our hearts are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ which turns away the wrath of God and allows us to have peace with God for the first time in all of human history. Why? Because the blood of Jesus Christ was shed on our behalf. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 18, all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. Get that for a second. We have peace with God now. And now that you're a son of God, a daughter of God, you've been given a job, you've been given a responsibility. You know what your responsibility is? It's the ministry of reconciliation. Let me explain to you what that means. Now that you have peace with God, it's your job to help other people who are the enemies of God now also find peace with God. It's almost like you and I are now ambassadors on behalf of Christ to bring peace in this world that is the enemy of God to bring them to peace. It's almost like that because that's what 2 Corinthians 5.18 says. To we went to God that was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. What's the word of reconciliation? What's the word that brings peace with God? It's the gospel. Now then we are, oh, get this, ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Romans 3.25, for whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through the faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins through the forbearance of God. Ephesians 1.7, by we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Much more being now justified, declared righteous by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That's propitiation. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, ye have you who were sometimes afar off have made us nigh unto the blood of Christ. Colossians 1.20, and having been made peace through the blood of his cross to reconcile all things unto him. And by him I say, whether they be things on earth or things in heaven. Now again, understanding all these deep theological terms, I hope it helps us better when we worship God corporately together through music. I will sing of my Redeemer. Redeemer, what does that mean? The one who purchased my soul. We have a beautiful song we hear, sing here called Jesus, Thank You. Your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The wrath of God completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. Again, so much rich theology in just the chorus of one song. By your perfect sacrifice, I've been brought near. Your enemy, you've made your friend. Reconciliation. Again, I hope as we sing songs about the worthiness of the lamb that was slain, this picture of the cross and everything that it bought for me will have more value in my life and that I'll love Jesus' cross so much more. As we close here today, we think of the idea of being imputed. Imputed means something was placed on your account, sometimes by something that you earned or sometimes something that you didn't do at all. When we think of the beautiful Bible word of imputation, we think, first of all, that sin was imputed unto all men.
chapter 5 tells us that because of Adam's sin, sin entered into the world and death was passed upon all men for all men have sinned. Because of Adam's sin, one man, sin entered into the world and now death and sin has passed upon all men. What that means is that we have sin because it came from the character of our father, Adam. So if you have a dad, you're a sinner. And you can thank Adam for that. So get this. Stay with me for a second. If you are born into this world by a father and a mother, you are a sinner. There's no way around that. So if one were going to be born into the world without sin, they would have to be born without a, somebody help me, father, right? Hmm. Only one person was ever born without a human father, born of the Holy Spirit, and that was Jesus Christ. That's why the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is a non-negotiable Bible doctrine. Because if Jesus, if Joseph was Jesus' dad, then that means Joseph was a sinner and Jesus was too. And if Jesus was a sinner, we need a new Savior. But if Jesus was born of a virgin, the way that the Scripture says, by the power of the Holy Spirit, then that means that he didn't have a sin nature when he was born. Therefore, he's the only person in the world that was ever born that could save us from our sins. And that's why we reject things like the perpetual virginity of Mary. First of all, because it's not a biblical concept. Secondly, that means every single one of Mary's kids could have been a savior as well, which is not true. So again, sin is imputed to us by Adam. Sin was added to our account before we were ever even born. But our sin was also imputed to Jesus Christ. He didn't do anything to deserve it, but he received our sin, placed upon his account. Therefore, he had to pay for our sin. Romans 5, 17, for if one, but by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Much more, they which receive abundance of grace and gift of righteousness shall reign by the life of one, Jesus Christ. Again, we all died because of Adam. We're all alive because of Christ. Therefore, as by the offense, one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, the righteousness of one free gift came to all men of justification of life. There we see the flip of condemnation versus justification. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, Jesus, shall many be made righteous. And the righteousness of Christ is imputed to all them that believe in him. That's it. Bottom line. Believe in Christ, you will be saved. You will receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ simply by faith and repentance. Well, don't I need to be a good person? Not to be saved, you don't. You just have to be a sinner who would believe. Well, don't I have to go to church? Don't I have to be a good person? Don't I have to stop sinning? Oh, being like Christ, yeah, that's the rest of your life. But you don't have to do any of that stuff to come to Jesus. You just have to believe by faith that Jesus is who he says he is and be willing to turn away from your sin. If you do that, you can be saved today, friend. So I want to talk to two different groups of people right now. First of all, I want to talk to those of you that are here that are not yet saved. First of all, Jesus loves you. God loves you. And that's why Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins. God doesn't want to send you to hell, but God says your sin must be paid. And either you can pay for yourself or allow Jesus to pay for you. And friend, I implore you, be saved today. 
Jesus says, no man shall enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Friend, you need to be saved today. So if you're here today and you say, I'm saved, I'm born again, let me tell you this. Look to the cross. It's your hope. It's your redemption. It's the power that you have over sin. It's proof that God loves you despite your sin. But it's also proof that your sin doesn't have power over you any longer. It's also proof that you cannot continue to live in your sin because you have been set free from that. It's also proof positive to you that if you're struggling against your sin, all you have to do is lay it down at the cross of Jesus Christ and it is forgiven and you have power over it because sin has no more dominion over you. It's also proof that any sinner in this world can be saved by the power of the blood that was shed on that cross. Anybody. Jesus says, anybody that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. But, get this, it's also the responsibility that you and I have to the rest of this world that they're either apart from Jesus. Again, either through ignorance, they don't know any better, or through rebellion. And if somebody dies and goes to hell, I want it to be because they chose to reject Christ, not because they didn't know. How shameful would it be that people that you'll see at work tomorrow are living under God's judgment and wrath out of ignorance? They don't know any better. They just need somebody to tell them, you have that opportunity. One pastor said one time, if, if people go to hell, maybe, may it be because they stepped over our bodies imploring them to come to Christ. But let no one go to hell unloved and unwarned. It's a great responsibility we have. You know those cute little Easter invites we have? My wife said make them pink because it's Easter. I think pink's kind of a girly color, but we did anyways because my wife's the boss. Um, on the back, if you get past the, the, the photo of the pastor, uh, on the back is the story of the cross and what it means. It's the gospel. Every single one of our invite cards that we ever print on back has the gospel, how people can find Jesus through the cross. Let's be faithful witnesses of what we've seen, of what we've experienced, of what we've heard. This week, I'm going to encourage you with this. We refer to this as Passion Week, Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. It's a week that Christ walked this earth for the last time before the crucifixion. It's a time where he came and spent time with his apostles, took the Last Supper, was crucified on what we call Good Friday. That's why we'll have a service for that. And then he rose again the third day, victorious over sin, death, and the grave. Take this week, Passion Week, and I want you to focus on Christ and the cross. I want to challenge you with this. If you don't already do this, I'm going to ask you to do this for this week only, and again, maybe make it a habit in the future. The music that you listen to this week, let it be worship music that fixes your heart upon Christ. Let it be music that as you listen to it, draws your heart towards Christ. I'm not, that's bigger than just Christian radio, okay? Christian radio, the majority of that's mostly not even Christian. It definitely doesn't pass it. Mostly it's worship music. I'm talking about hearts that, songs that grip your heart towards Christ. I'm going to ask you this week at some point to read through the gospel account of the crucifixion just so that you get in your heart and your mind exactly what took place for your redemption. I encourage you to be here on Good Friday as we sing about the cross and focus on Jesus Christ and everything that means for us. And I'm going to encourage you to be here next Sunday and bring a friend.
so they can hear the greatest story ever told, that Jesus died for sinners and he is alive forevermore. Because there's hope in the cross of Jesus Christ. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.